Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Actually, if you turned to John chapter 7 and then just looked back a few verses, you'll be at about the right place. John chapter 6 is very long. It is 71 verses long, and we're going to finish this chapter today by uh, God's grace, if he will allow it. And so we pick up in verse 52, and we'll go down to the end of the chapter. So what's been happening in this chapter, for a little context, is that Jesus and his 12 disciples have gone north into the region of Galilee. And at the very beginning of this chapter, there was a multitude of thousands of people that gathered around him who were hungry. And Jesus miraculously fed them with just a few pieces of bread and a couple of pieces of fish, what amounted to a lunchable, just a little bit of stuff. And he multiplied it and fed multiple thousands of people to where they had eaten the fill, didn't want any more, and there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Just unbelievable. And then Jesus went across the lake to the town of Capernaum, and the crowd followed him there the next day. They went looking for him, and they found him. And Jesus launched into this lengthy discussion with the people about the meaning of what he had just done, the significance of and the meaning behind this miracle where he provided bread for all of these thousands of people. And, he, and what he declared to them was that the true bread from heaven was him. He said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever feeds on me, whoever eats the bread that I give him will have eternal life. And so then there's grumbling and confusion and all this stuff going on in the crowd. Again, they kind of take him literally where he says he uses a physical image as a spiritual metaphor and the people don't get it. And so he says, if you eat this bread, you'll never go hungry again. And they say, oh, let us eat that bread always. Well, that's not exactly what he meant. He meant there is a deeper hunger. There is a deeper need in your life than another meal. Because you're going to eat another meal, and then you're going to get hungry again. and Eventually, you're going to die. But if you eat this bread, the bread that came down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, you will live forever. And so that leads us to these last few verses. Uh, Last week he said uh, to the crowd, we we saw God's sovereignty in the the saving of sinners where he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will hold on to him forever. He's always going to be mine. And so he said, the bread that I will give, look in verse uh, 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so we pick it up here, and I'm going to read for you verses 52 through 59. We'll kind of take a section at a time here, up through verse 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man Give us his flesh to eat. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So we're going to stop short of the, the people's response to this speech, if you will. And we're going to look at the speech itself, which has some pretty strange-sounding claims. And the crowd will have a hard time with them as well. So he tells, he's kind of escalated his claims about himself here and gotten more graphic in the imagery and the language he's using. And so he gave them bread, and then he said, I am the bread of life. And then he said, if you, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now there's a connection between bread and him, his body somehow. And now he goes even farther and says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then conversely, if you... Whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man and whoever drinks his blood will have eternal life. So his claims and his imagery and his language is kind of escalating and getting stronger and more vivid as he goes along. And I think we'll actually see that the the crowd's response to him and their resistance to him and their confusion kind of escalates along with it. But we'll come to that in just a few minutes. What I want you to see in these first few verses is that Jesus is not speaking literally. If Jesus is talking literally about people eating his body and drinking his blood, these, the entire message that he gives in verses 52 to 59 doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. To demonstrate that to you, I want to show you, we'll actually walk back a few verses. I want to show you eight times between verse 40 and verse 58 that Jesus uses this same formula the same equation, if you will, with the same result. So if you fill in the blank, you will fill in the blank. That's the formula that he uses. The second fill in the blank, if you do X, you will, is always the same. It's always, you will have eternal life. You will live. You will abide in me, which means to live in him. So I want you to look back, if you, if you can scan with me, to verse 40. All the way back up to verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And this actually has a promise. And I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will what? Have eternal life. There's the first statement of that formula. Whoever does this will have life. So in that case, it's everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, which is very similar to what he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, where he said the Son of Man would be lifted up and all who look to him and believe would be saved. And then verse 16 in chapter 3, where he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So he says here, if everyone who looks on the Son and believes will have eternal life. Look down to verse 47. Verse 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes 
has eternal life. There's that formula again. And this time it's very similar to what he said in verse 40. He doesn't say look on the son, but it says believe. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Belief, eternal life. See that so far? Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Okay, so the first part of the formula is a little different. The first two times he said, believe in me. Now he says, eat this bread. Which bread? The bread of life. The bread that came down from heaven. And then he tells them, that bread, by the way, is my flesh. I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the world. So eat this bread, and what happens? Live forever. Have eternal life. That's the very same thing. So there's that formula. Believe in me, have eternal life. Look on the Son and believe, have eternal life. Now we have eat this bread and have eternal life. Is he suddenly switching to like back and forth between spiritual and physical here? You have to both believe in me and also eat the bread of my flesh. It doesn't make sense if he means it literally. So he is using eating of bread as a spiritual metaphor for believing in him. Let's continue. Down to verse 53, which we just read. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Now, this is the very same truth, just stated negatively. He says, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have life. So it's just the corollary of that formula. Same thing. But now he's gotten a little more graphic. Eat flesh and drink blood. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you do that, or if you don't do that, you will not have life. Well, then he says in the very next verse, he's going to flip it back around. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has what? Eternal life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Very same formula, very same truth. Eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man is a spiritual act by which we place our faith in Him. We believe in Him. Down in verse 56, Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, the second part of the formula is a little different, but it means pretty much the same thing. To abide is to live, right, an ongoing fellowship. He, uh, he will abide in me, and I will abide in him. There is this intimate union that takes place between Jesus and his people when they feed on him by faith when they trust in him. So there we have again that formula. Feed on my flesh and drink my blood. Abide in me and I in him. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Feed on Christ, live because of Christ. Feed on him, have eternal life. Believe in him, have eternal life. See the pattern? One more. Verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, referring to the children of Israel back in the book of Numbers who ate the manna that God provided each day, and then eventually they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will what? Will live forever. Same formula. Feed on this bread, live forever. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, have eternal life. 
look on the Son and believe in him, have eternal life. And oh yeah, I will raise him up at the last day. So do you think Jesus is trying to get a point across? Eight times within these 18 or so verses, he has given this formula. The question really you could ask is, so how do I get eternal life? Because that's what he's talking about. If you do this, you get eternal life. You do this, you live forever. You do this, you abide in me. You do this, you have life because of me. So it's all about life. Remember, that's what John is writing about. He wrote this whole gospel. He told us at the very end of his gospel in chapter 20 that he is writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So life is what we're after. Not just existence, but real life, lasting life life, a life connected to Jesus Christ as our bread and as our sustainer. So if we're after life, and if we would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do I have to do to receive eternal life? And there are people in the Gospels who come to him and ask him that very question. What must I do for eternal life? Well, he tells us eight times in these few verses, believe in me. Feed on me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood, which cannot mean literal, physical uh, eating of his flesh. Because by the way, he still has a body. I don't know if you realize that, but when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended as a man. And when the apostles, like Paul in the the letters to Timothy and some other places, refer to Jesus, they, they refer to him as a man, God and man. And when the angel told the disciples who had seen Jesus ascend into heaven, the angel came down and said, he will return just as you saw him go, which is as a man. So Jesus is still God and man. He wasn't only human for 33 years or so while he lived on the earth and then became this ethereal spirit when he went back to heaven. He is God and man forever. So he still has a physical, fleshly body. Now, it's a glorified body. It's a, it's a body with different capacities than ours have. When you get a glimpse of that in the Gospels after his resurrection, where he can kind of walk through a door and kind of just appear and disappear at will and things like that. But he has a physical body. So if he is saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's only so much go around, if you will. He's just one man. So here's the list of things that you must do in order to get eternal life. It's not a long list. Look on the Son and believe in Him. Believe. Eat the bread from heaven. Eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. Feed on His flesh and drink His blood, which He says twice. Then feed on this bread, and then the bread from heaven. So it's a placing of confidence into Jesus as the one who alone gives life. It's, it's taking all of our heart and all of our dreams and hopes and fears and all of our eternity and where that, what that's going to look like and where I'm going to end up. It's taking all of that and just staking it on Jesus and saying, I'm with him. What he did on my behalf is all that counts, and that's what I'm trusting in. 
So I just want you to see in those eight verses, actually those 18 from verse 40 all the way down to 58, that he is driving home very clearly this, this spiritual truth and using his flesh and blood as a, uh, as a metaphor for trusting in him and for taking him into ourselves. Now, I do want to make a note here about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, I don't think that it's explicitly, uh, I don't think that these verses are explicitly about the Lord's Supper, but I do think that it calls it to mind and not accidentally. I do think that, uh, that John, and probably Jesus in saying it, intends for us to make the connection between what he's saying about his flesh and blood and what he would later say to his disciples on the night that he'll be arrested and betrayed and the night before his crucifixion when he was gathered with his 12 disciples in the upper room and they were eating a Passover meal and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so we see an institution, if you will, of, of, of the practice of the Lord's Supper as a recurring act for the church by which we remember uh, and memorialize, if you will, uh, the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross through his broken body and in his shed blood. So when Christians observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, they're, they're appropriating by faith the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Jesus in their place. So when we eat bread and drink wine in the Lord's Supper, we are saying, Jesus was broken for me, and Jesus shed his blood for me, and through the partaking of this supper, we are united both to him and to one another. Uh, I do want to make brief mention that this, just for clarity, that this is distinct uh, from what our friends at, uh, in Rome and throughout the world uh, have taught for a few hundred years, uh, the doctrine that they call transubstantiation, where when the priest prays over the bread and the cup, that there is a literal transformation that takes place where what is there is no longer bread, but the actual flesh of Christ. And what's in the cup is no longer wine, but it has actually become the blood of Jesus. And I think that there's error in that for at least two reasons. One is that it misinterprets Scripture, like this one, as literal, like Jesus making literal statements. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, well, I guess we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. How are we going to do that? Oh, he's going to give us his actual flesh and his actual blood in the Lord's Supper, in the Eucharist, which really just means giving thanks. It's a great word. Um, and so, but, but I think it forces Jesus to be saying something literal when he clearly means something spiritual here because he's equating eating the flesh of the Son of Man to drink his blood with believing in him. That's what he means by that. Uh, also, when he instituted the supper and said, this is my body broken for you, he couldn't have meant this actually is my body because he was sitting right there. I mean, did he peel the bread off of himself and hand it to him? It doesn't make sense. 
If it's literally his body, then, then, then we have to believe that Jesus has some sort of ethereal, spiritual body or something. But Jesus actually has a physical human body. And so I think it, it does injustice to Scripture. But the bigger problem that I have with, uh, with this transubstantiation doctrine and the, the, being the central act of the mass in the Catholic life is that it essentially re-sacrifices Jesus over and over. Every time the church gathers, the priest prays, and we offer Jesus up again for sins, as though his once-for-all sacrifice was not enough. And I think that's problematic. So I don't want to camp out there, but I just want to state that clearly, that that is a difference uh, between how uh, evangelical Christians approach the Lord's Supper and texts like this and, uh, and how the Catholic Church has seen that through the last several hundred years. So Jesus has made these eight statements. If you believe in me, you have eternal life. If you eat the bread from heaven, you'll live forever. If you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will abide in me and I in him, etc. Which all mean the same thing. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus for eternal life. So how do you think the crowd responds to this? Because remember, they have a hard time grasping spiritual truth from a physical image. So when Jesus says to them, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and if you don't, you can't have any life, they're going to struggle. Let's look at verse 60. I'll read verse 60 through 66. When many of his disciples heard it, Disciples there being just a general word for all those who were following him at this time. This does not mean the 12 disciples, and we'll see that distinction in just a minute. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, or who can understand it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So there is a mass exodus of sorts in these verses where the thousands that had gathered and had, had actually pursued him across the lake to Capernaum have now turned. They've taken offense, to use Jesus' words in, in verse 61. Have you, do you take offense at this? And the truth is, just religiously speaking, these words would have been very offensive to the Jews because under Mosaic law, they were forbidden to eat an animal that still had the blood in it at all, let alone to actually set aside the blood and drink it and let alone be talking about the flesh and the blood not of an animal, but of a human being. So Jesus has clearly stepped way beyond the boundaries of Jewish religion 
and the law of God that he had passed down to them. So when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is more than they can bear. And so they take offense, and they think it strange, and they think it probably sacrilegious, like he's blaspheming God to even be suggesting that we ought to eat the flesh and drink the blood of a man. This is absurd. But of course we see that they don't really understand. And they don't understand because they're deaf to the Spirit. They are deaf to the Spirit of God. Jesus tells us there in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. If anyone will understand this spiritual message that Jesus gives, it's the one who has spiritual ears to hear. And the one who has spiritual ears to hear is the one who has been enlightened, if you will, by the Holy Spirit. To go back to John chapter 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how could that be? How could a man be born again when he's old? And he said, flesh begets flesh and spirit begets spirit. So it is with the Spirit of God. The wind blows and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. You can't see it, but you feel its effects. And the Spirit is the same way. He comes, he gives life. You have no idea when it's going to happen. You don't know where it's going to happen. But the Spirit is the one who gives life. And we're back to the sovereignty of God and the saving of sinners. The Spirit alone is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help. As Paul says in Galatians, by works of the flesh shall no one be justified. The flesh doesn't help us. And if we're working out of our own righteousness and trying to do good stuff, it's not good enough. It's not enough to gain God's approval or God's acceptance. And it's not going to give us the kind of sight and the kind of hearing that we need in order to understand what Jesus is saying. And he tells us very plainly, so how does belief come? How does life come? It comes, check this out, through Jesus' words. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So who gives life? Who gives spiritual hearing and sight? The Holy Spirit. By what does that hearing and sight come? The words of Jesus. There is an intimate connection between the Word of God and the moving of the Spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God cannot be separated, cannot be pulled apart. When God's Word is proclaimed, His Spirit rides on Him and does His work. He works in sinners' hearts as the Word of God is delivered and proclaimed. These words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We see the power of God's word all over the Bible. How did God create the world? He spoke. There was nothing. And then God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. He spoke the universe into existence. By words, God saves those who will believe. That's all over the place in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross which is the message about the crucified Messiah. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message about Jesus on a cross for sinners is life to those who will be saved. 
He says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. What's the gospel? It's an announcement. It's a message. It's a story of Jesus come into the world, taking up obedience on your behalf, taking your sins to a cross and paying their penalty and rising from the dead and inviting people to new life through faith in him. That's the gospel. And Paul says that's the power of God to salvation. It's not special spiritual feelings. It's not reading a great book. It's the message of Jesus and him crucified. And the spirit of God rides on those words and penetrates the hearts of sinners. In Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. My words are spirit and life. Jesus' words bring life and open the doorway to belief and faith in him. So let me plead with you. Give yourself opportunities for the words of God to transform you. Read his words. Meditate on his words. Study his words. Pray about his words. Memorize his words. Get his words into your mind and heart so that he can change them into what he intends. We need the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. Don't neglect them. But these so-called disciples didn't take it to heart. Jesus told us in verse 64, after he said this, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who don't believe. So some of you are standing here and listening and you don't believe. And we have this commentary from John in a parenthesis that shows us the divine omniscience of Jesus. He knows people's hearts. He sees where people are. You can't fool God. If you're playing religious because you think you're going to earn something from God, he knows. He sees it. It's not, you're not surprising him. Look at these words. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. This is mentioned one of two of Judas. We'll come to him again at the end. Judas is the disciple, the one of the 12, who will hand Jesus over to uh, those who want to kill him at the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would believe and wouldn't. So he's speaking to thousands of people, and he knows. He knows who the true ones are and who the fake ones are. J. Vernon McGee said there's believers and unbelievers and make-believers. There are people who are just playing church. They're just playing God. They're playing religion, and they think it's going to gain them something, either approval with other people or some kind of spiritual capital that they can cash in and get good stuff from God. I don't know, but they're make-believers because when it gets tough or when a, a teaching like this comes that doesn't make sense and it feels weird, it's too much. And just like this crowd of so-called disciples, they turn away. And they don't follow Jesus anymore. Why don't they believe? So we see that Jesus knows that they don't believe, but why? Why do you have all these people who have, who have seen a miracle? 
that Jesus performed, been the direct recipients of this miracle of multiplying bread and fish, and they've heard this teaching, and yet they don't believe. Why not? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Some of you don't believe. That's why I told you no one comes unless they're granted by the Father. Why aren't they believing? Because God is not drawing them. They are spiritually blind and deaf, and God has not overcome their impairments in order to call them to faith in Christ. And so once again, the mysterious, sovereign purposes of God at work, beyond what we can know or understand. So not surprisingly, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They'd heard all they could handle. Too hard, too offensive, too weird, too exclusive. Have you ever known someone who seemed to be a Christian for a while, but eventually walked away from Jesus? It happens. It happens all the time. Maybe they got offended over a particular teaching of Jesus or some other doctrinal position of a church. Too much. Maybe they felt like it was too personal, too much was being asked of them. This isn't for me. Maybe they thought all their problems would go away when they came to Christ, and then when things were still kind of tough, they thought, this doesn't really work. Maybe they blamed it on other Christians. They're too hypocritical, they're too self-righteous, too judgmental. I don't want to be like them. It's a tragic thing to come near to Jesus, begin the journey of following him, and then lose interest and wander away. Don't be that guy. Don't be these foolish, blind followers in John 6 who get a belly full of bread, follow him to the next town, and then turn away when it's too much. Let's stick with Jesus. Let's follow the example instead of these last few faithful brothers that we find in verses 67 through 71. Let me read these verses. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Like, What are you still doing here? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That's a weird note to end this chapter on, don't you think? This story ends with Judas, one of the 12 disciples, who Jesus hand-selected for his inner circle, who is doing the work of Satan and will betray Jesus. Isn't that strange to you? You've got 12 disciples that you hand-picked, and one of them is doing the work of Satan? One of them is going to deliver you over to be crucified? But I think it illustrates the larger truth of this chapter the larger truth of all of these verses. Because if you think about the trajectory of this chapter, Jesus began in John chapter 6 with a multitude of thousands at his feet, listening, receiving, 
even following him to the next town. And it ends with 11. 12 minus 1. It ends with 11 followers of Jesus who are in it, who are sincere, who have enough spiritual understanding to proclaim, as Simon does, you have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. 11. He went from maybe 15,000 to 11. This looks like total failure, doesn't it? From a movement perspective, from a ministry perspective, this looks like Jesus is losing. Jesus, you had a crowd of thousands. Joel Osteen would be envious of your crowd. And by the end of the chapter, you've got less than a dozen. What happened? You know, if this, if this ministry event were a project at, at work, can you imagine how we would analyze and pick apart this performance? You can almost see Simon Peter sitting down with the twelve. You know, going, okay, guys, look, what went wrong? Did, how did something with so much promise end up such a dismal failure? What happened? Andrew, maybe, maybe we need some quality control because you, you just brought a Lunchable to Jesus. Maybe you needed better food. If you had brought Jesus like a steak and potatoes and something that was like more delicious, maybe they would have stuck around longer. So maybe let's work on our quality control. Maybe we could talk about our messaging. You know, I mean, Jesus is, you know, he's got the words of eternal life and all that, but, you know, he can come on a little strong sometimes. Maybe we can talk to Jesus about toning it down at the next town, right? You could, this is such an abysmal failure in our minds. He had thousands, and he's down to 11. Isn't that the opposite of what we usually hope for? You want to start with 11 and end up with thousands, right? Jesus is going the opposite direction, why is that not failure? How is this not a complete missed opportunity? Jesus, I'll tell you how. The Spirit gives life. Everyone who the Father gives me will come. And everyone that comes, I will not cast out, but raise him up at the last day. God's sovereign saving purposes are underneath this entire chapter. And our tendency and temptation to interpret Jesus' ministry in Capernaum as an utter failure just show us that we're looking with the wrong eyes. Shows us that we're not seeing with spiritual eyes. We're seeing with the eyes of our kind of worldly human metrics and measures and bigger is better and more is what we want. Jesus hasn't lost. Jesus hasn't failed. Just as he told the crowd in verse 65, and now he tells us the remaining 12 in verse 70, did I not choose you? And one of you is a devil. And I'm not thrown off by that, right? One of my 12 disciples is doing the work of Satan and is going to betray me, and I'm okay. I'm okay with that. Let me just say, you know, as a sort of a window into the heart of a pastor, um, when people walk away, when someone is following Jesus for a while, but then for whatever reason, they wander off, it's hard. It hurts. It feels like failure. It feels like losing. In times like that, I have to remind myself of God's sovereignty over people's hearts, even over unbelief and resistance to him. Jesus isn't losing. 
In fact, he said that of all that the Father gives him, he won't even lose one. Jesus wins. Jesus gets what he's after. God accomplishes his saving purposes. We want to say to Jesus, what happened? How are you okay with this? How is this not a massive failure? And it's like he says to us, you're looking with the wrong eyes. You you don't know my plans. You don't understand my purposes. It's not for you to judge me a success or a failure. What is for you is to believe and come to me for life. Feed on my flesh, which I'm giving for you. Drink my blood, which I'm pouring out on the cross for your sins. Come to me. Believe in me. And by believing, find life in my name.